Hey guys, welcome to In the Trenches, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to entrepreneurs and CEOs running small to medium-sized businesses. In today's episode, I've again made a blog post available to you in audio form, which is what you're listening to right now. I've crudely called these episodes audio blogs, and I'm presenting them to you in case you prefer this format over the written one. If you'd like to access the written form of these blogs, you can do so at inthetrenches.net forward slash blog. Once you're there, feel free to subscribe so that you can receive blog posts in both written and audio form as they're published. In any case, regardless of how you decide to consume the blog material, I sincerely hope that something contained within is genuinely helpful to you along your own leadership journey. Among the countless variables that have to be carefully considered when acquiring a business is the question of how that acquisition is going to be financed. Now, my intent in the audio blog that follows is not to cover the countless options available to acquire stemming from this question. Indeed, that wouldn't be possible in a single audio blog of any reasonable length, but instead to provide you with an overview of the specific lessons that I learned when financing my own acquisition in 2014. I'll begin by discussing the importance of the link between capital structure and strategy, and we'll then discuss more specific lessons learned in raising the debt required to finance the acquisition of my company. Lessons learned in raising the equity will follow in a subsequent audio blog. So let's start by talking about the idea of aligning capital structure and strategy. And in fact, this is one consideration that I think is far too often overlooked among acquirers, particularly inexperienced ones. And that is the importance of tightly aligning capitalization decisions with the general investment thesis in question. And this is important because not all investment returns are created equally. To illustrate what I mean, in some cases to hit a given return threshold, investors might require target companies to open new locations, acquire new customers, enter new markets, or purchase more properties, plants, or equipment. We'll call these types of opportunities type A. In other cases, to hit that same return threshold, those same investors might require different target companies to repay heavy debt loads, upsell existing customers, raise prices, or exit unprofitable lines of business we'll call these types of opportunities opportunity type B. Now, all else being equal, the investment thesis underlying opportunity type A is growth-oriented, with the required value creation initiatives being quite capital-intensive in nature. In contrast, the investment thesis underlying opportunity type B is more cash flow-oriented, and the required value creation initiatives won't require much capital at all. As a result, these very different investment theses should be financed through very different capital structures. Though this may sound very obvious to you, and I hope that it does, too often prospective acquirers make capital structure decisions that don't explicitly consider the fundamental tenets of the investment thesis in question, and that is the unique levers that must be pulled to create value and thus generate their required rates of return. Now, in situations where an acquiring party is seeking external capital to finance the acquisition of another company, substantially all investors will ask for a basic sources and uses analysis, which aims to answer the following questions. Number one, where are you getting the money from? That's the sources. Number two, what are you planning to do with that money? That's the uses. Now, all else being held constant, in opportunity type A, I would expect a primary use of the acquisition capital to be funding the company's balance sheet with a lot of cash to finance the required growth initiatives in light of their capital intensity. 
In contrast, uses of the acquisition capital for opportunity type B are likely to be very different and could include founder liquidity or financing day-to-day -day working capital requirements, among other things. Though the sources of capital can vary widely and indeed are impacted by the investor's risk tolerance, their access to capital, and their cost of capital, among other considerations, all else being equal, I would expect banks to be more comfortable lending more heavily against opportunity type B. This is so because lenders tend to value stability in cash flows more than they do company growth. And in most business models, company growth tends to be quite expensive. And by that, I mean negative pressure on profitability and tends to consume a lot of cash that would otherwise be used to repay outstanding debt. So what does all this mean? Well, all of this is important because if an investor undercapitalizes an acquisition that necessitates capital intensive sources of value creation, then they risk not only losing out on their desired rate of return, but they also run the risk of the acquired company running out of cash in their pursuit of growth, even for an otherwise profitable business. On the other hand, if one overcapitalizes an acquisition that necessitates only capital light sources of value creation, then they also put their desired rate of return at risk through unnecessary dilution, assuming that they over-equitize their investment, and low returns on idle capital, among other things. As an acquirer trying to maximize returns, it is likely not enough to simply identify an otherwise attractive company and take comfort in the fact that there are dozens of potential value creation levers for you to pull. This wide net approach not only introduces the risk of over or undercapitalization that I just discussed, but it can also sometimes be indicative of the acquirer not having a sufficiently nuanced understanding of what specific levers they should be pulling to create value within the acquired company. Now, this is exactly the trap that I fell into when I acquired my own business in 2014. In retrospect, I wasn't really sufficiently clear on my own investment thesis, and as a result, my capitalization strategy at the time could best be described as fence-sitting. Though the ultimate return to my investors was a good one, I unquestionably lost out on providing them with a higher rate of return due to my lack of true upfront clarity. My capitalization decisions at the time weren't particularly reflective of capital light growth initiatives, nor were they particularly reflective of capital intensive growth initiatives, hence fence sitting. Indeed, many inexperienced acquirers tend to make capitalization decisions in a more general way, usually through some combination of a general acceptance of risk, a general aversion to risk, hastily accepting capital regardless of its source and thus its implications, not having a sufficiently nuanced understanding of the specific levers that must be pulled in the acquired company to achieve their desired rates of return, focusing only on sources of capital but not being sufficiently thoughtful about the uses of that capital, and optimizing around the wrong things. So for example, consider somebody who takes too little equity to maximize their own personal ownership stake in the acquired company. On your way in, have a plan for your way out. Though it goes without saying that things can, and often do, change over an investment hold period as new information presents itself, in my opinion, it is good investment hygiene to have a plan for your way out while you're still on your way in. That is, when acquiring a company, you should have an idea of specifically how you're planning to return capital to your equity investors long before the need to actually do so. Now, there are many different ways to return capital to investors, including an exit event, dividends, share repurchases, and leverage recapitalizations, among others. Now, the reason why getting early clarity on this issue is important is because without it, you will lack a north star that will guide your capital allocation decisions in the course of actually running the business in question. 
So for example, about a year after I acquired my own company, I found myself with about $2 million of cash on our balance sheet, but honestly had no real plan to allocate it. Because I didn't have a clear plan on how I was going to return capital to my investors, I ended up kind of dabbling in a number of different initiatives, which mostly included share repurchases, debt repayment, and reinvestment in company operations. Though each action in and of itself was likely accretive to equity value, what ultimately manifested was just more fence-sitting by me. We weren't quite a growth investment, which might be capitalized by something like heavily reinvesting money in existing operations in anticipation of an exit event several years down the line, nor were we quite a cash flow oriented investment, which likely would be characterized by repaying debt, paying dividends, or repurchasing shares. This kind of half-pregnant approach to capital allocation ultimately hindered the return that I was eventually able to deliver to my investors. Let's get into some specific lessons learned from raising debt to finance an acquisition. And again, my intent here is not to cover every variable that prospective acquirers should consider when raising debt to finance an acquisition, because that's well beyond the scope of this audio blog. Instead, what I'm about to describe are some specific lessons based on my own experience. Number one, if you can, consider paying two commitment fees. Now, when a lender provides a prospective acquirer with a term sheet, which is a non-binding summary of the key terms and conditions of a proposed loan to be further fleshed out in a legally binding credit agreement, they ask for something called a commitment fee. Now, this fee can range anywhere from, say, 20 to 50,000 bucks or so, and is paid by the prospective borrower to the prospective lender, and is basically meant to compensate the bank for the time and effort that they will expend in further evaluating the creditworthiness of your company and your transaction. If financing is ultimately not approved by the bank, they often return the commitment fee to the borrower. However, if financing is approved in substantially the same form as was laid out in the term sheet, then the bank keeps the commitment fee whether you choose to borrow from them or not. Though most prospective acquirers, in this case borrowers, pay only one commitment fee, I would suggest considering paying two different commitment fees to two different banks as a form of insurance, if you will, to protect yourself against what happened to me in late 2013. After receiving term sheets from several different banks, I decided to pay a commitment fee to Bank A, with whom I worked exclusively in the weeks leading up to the closing date of my transaction. During this time, they performed extensive due diligence and assured me that the terms in the final credit agreement would be substantially the same as those initially presented to me in the term sheet. One to two weeks before the transaction's closing date, however, the bank's credit group, which is the group within a bank that makes final decisions on which loans the bank is willing to underwrite and on what terms, changed the proposed loan terms to such an extent that Bank A actually no longer represented the most attractive option. Now it was actually Bank B, and unfortunately, I had ceased communications with Bank B several weeks earlier because I wasn't willing to pay them a commitment fee. Now they had the most attractive offer. Now, this might sound like a retrade made in bad faith by Bank A, but it wasn't. At most banks, term sheets are issued by relationship managers, or those with somewhat similar titles, and feature the terms and conditions that they suspect will be approved by the bank's credit group, who typically doesn't even get involved in the process at the term sheet stage. The credit underwriting group, again, that has final say on any given loan, is often looped into the process closer to the contemplated funding date, and if they have a materially different view on the creditworthiness of a company or a transaction, then they absolutely have the latitude to either approve or not approve the loan at all, or approve it under materially different terms from those that had been originally proposed in the term sheet, and that was the case in my own situation. From the perspective of the borrower, this is just an unfortunate reality of how the credit underwriting process works at most banks. 
Now, I can assure you that being two weeks away from the biggest acquisition of your life with no debt financing agreed to is a pretty stressful place to be, and I think I lost a lot of hair as a result. Thankfully, in my case, Bank B was both willing and able to move extremely quickly and ultimately funded the loan on time, but those two weeks were among the most stressful of my professional life, and just as importantly, they put the entirety of the transaction at risk. For this reason, prospective acquirers may consider paying two separate commitment fees to two separate banks to basically insure against the risk of something similar happening to them. Lesson number two, backweight your mandatory amortization payments if possible. Now, this point is especially relevant for individual acquirers who are planning to assume an active operational role in the companies that they acquire, and in particular those who may not have a great deal of operational or leadership experience. Running a business, especially for the first time, is honestly hard enough as it is, never mind running a leveraged business under the watchful eye of a creditor. For this reason, in your negotiations with prospective lenders, I'd recommend that you try to backweight your mandatory amortization payments into the later years of the loan to provide you with a bit less pressure in years one and two, where you will presumably still be finding your footing as a CEO. There are two ways for you to do this. Number one is have the loan amortization period exceed the loan term. So to explain the difference between term and amortization. Just like the mortgage on your home, loans to finance acquisitions of companies feature both terms and amortization periods, and these aren't necessarily always the same numbers. So to illustrate an example, consider a typical home mortgage. Terms are often three to five years, and the amortization periods are as high as 20 to 25 years. A five-year term loan with a five-year amortization period would see the borrower make identical annual payments equal to 20% of the loan principal each year for five years. In contrast, a five-year term loan with a 10-year amortization period would see a borrower repay only 10% of the loan principal each year, and in the fifth and final year, they would have the option to either make a single balloon payment to retire the entire outstanding amount, in this case, 60% of the loan principal would still be doing outstanding at the end of year five, or to roll over or refinance the, amount, the outstanding amount into a new loan. Second way you can do this is to simply backweight the mandatory payment schedule. So even if you can't have the loan amortization period exceed the loan term, you can still request a mandatory payment schedule that is backweighted to the outer years of a loan. For example, a five-year term loan with a five-year amortization period could feature either of the following two mandatory repayment schedules. Option one, it could simply be 20% a year for five years. Option two, it could be something like 10% in year one, 10% in year two, 20% in year three, 25% in year four, and 35% in year five. In either option, 100% of the loan is paid off at the end of five years. Lesson number three, don't get greedy on fixed versus floating rate debt. Now again, just like your mortgage, term loans to finance acquisitions can either be fixed or floating rate, and there is a risk-return trade-off inherent in both. As I've already mentioned, running a business, especially for the first time, is hard enough as it is to say nothing of the additional challenges associated with running a leveraged business under the watchful eye of a creditor. For this reason, unless you have a meaningfully compelling reason to do otherwise, I would suggest erring on the side of fixed rate loans over variable rate loans. Any quote overpayment of interest that you may pay as a result of this decision, I think will be more than justified by the certainty and predictability of the repayment schedule. There are much better ways for you to create equity value than benefiting from a few basis points of interest rate differential. 
It's also worth noting that as of this recording, the economy remains in a protracted period of low interest rates, which makes this decision all the more straightforward in my opinion. In a high interest rate environment, additional consideration may be warranted, though I would still proceed with caution. Lesson four, add a revolving line of credit to your term loan. Now, in addition to term loans, most banks also offer revolving lines of credit that the borrower can draw on or borrow from and repay at their discretion. Even if you suspect you may not need one of these, I'd recommend that you secure one in any case. Remember that no interest is ever due unless money has actually been borrowed from the facility, so there isn't a great deal of downside risk. Now, not only do revolving lines of credit provide you with a valuable buffer against unexpected cash flow shortages, but they're also particularly useful in the first one to three months after an acquisition is made. This is so because companies are often sold on a cash-free, debt-free basis, meaning that the seller typically sweeps all of the cash off of the company's balance sheet immediately prior to the consummation of the sale. This can create unexpected and certainly unwanted cash crunches if, say, an unexpected expense presents itself shortly after the sale. Note, of course, that the expected cash outflows immediately following the closing date should be properly accounted for in the working capital adjustment. And you can check out my audio blog on the working capital adjustment if you want to learn more about that. Lesson five, don't ignore non-bank sources of debt financing. Though there are plenty of other sources of debt capital beyond just banks, I want to focus specifically on the seller as a potential source of debt financing. In these situations, a quote seller note, also known as a vendor takeback note or a VTB for short, is issued such that the seller becomes the lender and the purchaser becomes the borrower. So consider the following example. A company is being sold for a $20 million valuation with an $11 million cash payment upfront and a $9 million seller note at a 5% interest rate maturing in four years. In this situation, the selling entrepreneur receives only $11 million in cash today. They would then, quote, lend the acquirer the remaining $9 million by way of not taking immediate payment of it, and they charge the acquirer 5% annual interest with payment due at the end of four years. And of course, there could be interim payments, for example, annually. Now, seller notes can provide borrowers with several advantages relative to bank debt. Namely, A, optically, sellers demonstrate continued confidence in the business and its ability to generate the cash flow required to service the loan as they effectively become a lender to it. B, seller notes can often be a cheaper form of financing, i.e. a lower interest rate, than bank debt, even though they are less senior in the capital structure relative to bank debt. Because they are the most senior in the capital structure, loans from banks have to be paid in full before other lenders, like the sellers in this case, and equity holders see a penny should the company ever be dissolved or sold. Now, situations like this aren't as rare as you may think and typically present themselves when the seller isn't fully aware of prevailing borrowing rates in capital markets. In this way, buyers can benefit from a sort of interest rate arbitrage or mispricing. C, seller notes typically have no covenants associated with them, whereas bank loans pretty much always do. And D, unlike bank debt, seller notes are usually non-recourse in nature, meaning that failure of the borrower to make timely payments will not lead to the lender taking possession of the company and or its assets to satisfy the outstanding amount of the loan. Now in saying this, I'm of course not advocating for simply not making the payments that you've committed to making. It goes without saying that you should make every effort to do so. So, in sum, what does this all mean? Well, it means that capitalization decisions are strategy decisions. Capital structure drives strategy, and strategy, in turn, drives capital structure. 
As I mentioned before, as an acquirer, it's not simply enough to simply identify an otherwise attractive company and take comfort in the fact that there are dozens of potential value creation levers for you to pull. This wide net approach risks over or undercapitalization and is often indicative of a lack of clarity on the part of the acquirer. Furthermore, when contemplating how you're planning to return capital to shareholders, it probably isn't enough to rely on the idea that you can do so through any or all of the available mechanisms. If you do, you may lack a North Star, like I did, that will provide you with the necessary clarity when making capital allocation decisions in the course of actually running the business in question. The absence of this North Star may cause your company to lack a true identity as an investment asset and returns are likely to suffer as a result. And finally, when raising debt to finance an acquisition, understand that loans are more multivariable than they may initially appear to be. Though every loan is ultimately the result of a negotiation between borrower and lender, thus neither party is likely to get every term and condition that they're seeking, there are many levers for borrowers to pull to make the loan as favorable as possible for them.